Good to see all of you this morning on this uh, first Sunday as we're celebrate the, celebrating the Advent season. If you have your Bible with you, let's go to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be spending our time today. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you would like to follow along with us, there are some Bibles that are scattered throughout the chair racks there in front of you. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We have people with us each week who are unfamiliar with the Bible. And so you've got to start somewhere. Uh, Luke page 855 is going to be where you're going to find Luke chapter 1 in the Bibles that are there on the chair racks in front of you. I want to say thank you to all the people who have worked so hard uh, to put together all the things that we're doing this Advent season. We've had a whole team of people who have decorated our church uh, beautifully and well for this. Uh, we have a whole team of people who put together our Advent boxes. If you did not get one of our Advent boxes that we passed out last week, there is a Christmas tree out there with other Advent boxes under that. Please stop and get one. We've got, there's a little box there. It's got four lanterns in it that you can use as Advent candles. It's got a, uh, a devotional that we have uh, several people in our congregation came together to produce that is uh, going to be have questions in it that are aimed both at an older and a younger audience so that you can tailor it to whatever your family situation is like. Uh, there are scripture readings that are in there, and there are two per week for the four weeks leading up to uh, Christmas. And so we've already done two of them last week. I hope you were able to do them. But if you didn't, it is not too late to get caught up. And if you did not grab one of those boxes, you can still stop by and uh, grab one of those on your way out today. Luke chapter 1 is where we are going to be spending uh, most of our time today. It was dark when Zechariah woke up. This day that he woke up was going to be one of the biggest days of his priestly career. It was a day that had not happened leading up to this point, and it would going to be a day that would not happen again. I can imagine that he and his wife were a little bit nervous as they went through their morning routines, as, as they maybe shared breakfast together, or as they made sure that his priestly garments were, were as they should be. They had both been born into priestly families, so this was nothing new to either of them. They had grown up within the priesthood. They knew the rhythms of this life. They knew the circumstances of this life very well. The Bible tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were devout Jews. They were people who were pursuing God's righteousness, and they were, they were living for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible tells us that they had lived a good long life together. They were up in years at this point. But like us, their lives were not without their disappointments. You have disappointments in your life, things that you thought were going to play out in a particular way that have not turned out to play out in that particular way. And of course, they were no exception. And one of their biggest disappointments was not being able to have a child their own. They had desperately desired a child. 
This was a big day, as I mentioned, for Zechariah because his name had been drawn to offer the daily sacrifice. And the Bible doesn't explain this to us in detail if you read the story that's here in Luke chapter 1, but this is an incredibly significant thing because this is an honor, as I said, that a priest would have only one time per year. In the temple, there was a morning and an evening sacrifice that was offered day after day after day, and names were drawn to be able to offer these respective sacrifices. But there were so many priests, there there are estimates that there were roughly 18,000 priests at this time uh, growing up in the priestly tribe that a priest would actually only have opportunity to do this once in his lifetime. So you can imagine the the, the, the nervous excitement as, as Zechariah heads to the temple as he winds his way through the streets of Jerusalem that day. We don't know whether he offered the morning sacrifice or the evening sacrifice. The Bible tells us that there were plenty of people gathered there praying before the evening sacrifice. So we assume that perhaps it was the evening sacrifice because there were so many people around. We don't know that for sure. But when the time came, Zechariah is there in the holy place, and he is there with the sacred furniture that is there in that holy place. He's there with the bread of the presence, or the table of showbread. He's there with the, with the golden lampstand. He's there with the altar of incense. And you can imagine him fastidiously going about his responsibilities as he is as they are laid out for him offering this sacrifice and as Zechariah is watching this incense rise up towards heaven something incredibly unexpected happens if you're there in Luke chapter 1 with me look at verse 11 Luke chapter 1 and verse 11 the bible says this The word of God says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Imagine Zechariah going about his business on the most special day of his career, carrying out his responsibilities, thinking that he is alone, only to look up and see that he is not, to look up and see that God's messenger has appeared with him in the holy place. And not only has an angel appeared in the holy place, but this 
angel has come to give a, a special message just to him. That angel's message to Zechariah is that contrary to his expectations and contrary to the way he has been thinking about this the whole life, his whole life, his prayers and, and Elizabeth's prayers to God have not been left unread this whole time. He thinks this whole time that God has left him on unread when this angel appears to say, you know what, God has actually heard the prayers you thought he hadn't. You are going to have a son. But this child, the angelic messenger tells him, is going to be more than just an answer to their prayers as a couple. The angel tells him that this child is going to be set apart for greatness before he's even born. And the angel tells him something that we might just kind of move past quickly without seeing the relevance. But remember, Zechariah is a priest. He is very familiar with the Old Testament. He has likely memorized large portions of the Old Testament. And so when the angel gives the prophecy of what his son is going to become, Zechariah is going to immediately recognize in those latter two ver in those in, in what the angel says, that the angel is quoting a prophecy of Malachi. Malachi is the very last book in, in, in your Old Testament. In our English arrangement of the Bible, Malachi comes last. In the Hebrew Bible, it's not arranged that way, and so Malachi is not the last, it's not the last book. But in our English Bibles, the prophecies of Malachi are the very last ones, and the very last two verses of the very last chapter of that book is what the angel quotes. There's going to be a figure, Malachi prophesies, who is going to be an Elijah-like figure. He is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers. And so when Zechariah is standing here, hearing the angel speak to him, he is immediately going to recognize that the son that is being promised to him, this answer to prayer, is not just God's gift to him and Elizabeth, but this son is actually going to be this Elijah figure that Malachi promised four centuries earlier. How do you go about processing something like that? Zechariah, upon hearing this, raises his hand and says, Any questions? Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Notice he handled hers a little bit more delicately. Lessons for us all over the Bible, aren't there? And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delight in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So how does Zechariah respond to this amazing news? God has heard your prayers, and he's going to do something miraculous that requires stretching the bounds of believable biology. And not only is God going to stretch the bounds of believable biology, but the son you have is going to be this promised figure that is going to set in, in, in motion the prophecies about the Messiah to come. And Zechariah says, well, what's the sign of this? As if speaking to an angel was not enough. It's interesting to me how Gabriel speaks to him. He says, I am Gabriel. And that may not mean anything to you, but Gabriel is the angel that appears to Daniel and gives these visions to Daniel and makes these promises to Daniel all the way back in the Babylonian exile in the Old Testament. And Gabriel, sa Gabriel says, you know that guy, that's me. And Gabriel further says, I stand in the presence of the Lord. Now that's an interesting turn of phrase because where is Zechariah? I mean, of all places in the world, the temple is the place where God had chosen to make his presence known. God's presence dwells in his temple. And, and Zechariah is standing in the second most sacred place in the whole temple complex. He's standing in the holy place, and he is only separated from the most holy place, the most sacred place in the whole temple complex, by a veil that's hung down in front of it, or in between those two rooms, that only the high priest can enter, and only once a year. If anybody was standing in the presence of God, it was Zechariah. Until he met Gabriel. So Gabriel says, if talking to me isn't enough, I'll give you a sign. You're not going to be able to speak anymore until your son is born. Now, on first read, that may seem a little harsh. And we don't want to be too harsh towards Zechariah, because I suspect that Every single one of us, without exception, would have the same responses as he had. So we're not casting ourselves in any better light than we would him. But this, this may seem harsh until we realize what the angel is doing here. The angel is revealing Zechariah's unbelief. We'll say more about that in a few minutes. Fast forward nine months. Nine months without speaking. John is born. 
And there is some confusion going on in the, in the wake of his birth about what he's going to be named. And, and they're asking Elizabeth, and she's saying his name is John. And they're saying, boy, we sure wish Zechariah could talk so that he could correct this because nobody in your family is named John. And so that shouldn't be his name. And then John all of a sudden is able to open his mouth and say, no, actually, my wife is right. Oh, I can talk. And his name is John because that's what Gabriel told me to name him. Name is going to be John. And listen to the response of the neighbors in verses 65 and 66, if you're there. The Bible says, And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. There's a contrast between the lead-up to the birth of Jesus and the lead-up to the birth of John, isn't there? Because the lead-up to the birth of Jesus takes everyone by surprise. There's no spectacular things that are available to everybody, uh, available to everybody uh, around them, but there are all kinds of spectacular things leading up to the birth of John. And so this is creating a buzz. Did you hear? Zechariah went... And we were going to hear all about it. He went to the temple to do that one day of service, and we were going to hear all about it. And now he's back, and he can't talk. But he's written on a wax tablet, and we've been able to piece some things together that his wife is going to have a baby. And yet, you're right, we all thought that was crazy. But then there she is, pregnant. And so there's something happening here. And he's also told us something about Malachi's prophecy, that this is going to be this Elijah-like figure that's going to come. And all of these things are coalescing so that when John is finally born and Zechariah can finally speak, everybody's saying, God's doing something here. We may not know what it is, but God is most certainly at work. What is this boy going to grow up to be? Luke takes a lot of time to give us John's origin story. But there's another John, not the same John, John the disciple of Jesus. He also gives John's origin story, but he does it in just one sentence. He says this in John chapter 1 and verse 6. It'll be on the screen behind me. He summarizes the whole thing this way. There was a man sent from God whose name. That's the kind of answer you get when you ask your kids when they came home from school how it was. Good. Did anything happen? No. But John goes on in his gospel. Verse 7, he says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Why did he do that? That all might believe through He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. John is given a a special purpose, a special ministry, and that ministry is to bear witness about the light. He himself was not the light, but he bears witness about it. And the Bible actually calls John a lamp in John chapter 5. Calls him a lamp. Calvin referred to him as a lantern that bore witness to the true light 
Jesus Christ who was coming into the world. And so what we imagine as we walk our way through the Gospels and the early parts of the Gospels and we see the life and ministry of John, what I, what I wanted to imagine in our mind's eye is a man walking, holding a lantern with a little bit of light, just splashing a little bit of light on the path ahead to prepare for the explosion of light who is coming into the world. John had a special prophetic calling. That calling was to prepare people for the advent, the appearance, the coming of the Messiah, which is why we are calling this series The Lantern. Here's what we want to do in this series. We want to go back and retrace John's footsteps. We want to get behind John and see where his lantern casts its light. What did John do to prepare the people for the coming ministry of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because we believe that there is a second coming? John prepared them for the first advent. And I think where he casts us light can prepare us for the second. Fleming Rutledge has written a book called Advent. She says in that book that Advent begins in the dark. The Advent season is one of darkness. Our days are shorter. The darkness is around longer. Even those of us living in Florida experience our version of cold, which I, I hate. You should never see a three or a four or five as the first number. Start with six. But that's the world around us, the natural environments in which we live that remind us of this. But I don't think that I need to do much convincing with you when I say that we are a people who not just in the physical environment around us, but in the spiritual environment around us, are a people who dwell in great darkness. So we want to follow in John's footsteps and see where the lantern casts his light. And what I'd like to do each week is see that John's lantern casts his light on one of our needs. So this morning we'll begin this way. John shines a light on our need to believe. John shines a light on our need to believe. And that's what the disciple John's gospel told us. He says he came to bear witness about the light so that all might believe. And John's story shines a light on our need for faith, our need to believe, before he is even born. And we see that in the story of his father that we've been considering together this morning. Even though it was a special day for Zechariah in many ways, in other ways it was a day 
just like any other. Zechariah would have been well familiar with the temple. As I told you before, he and his wife both had grown up in families. The priesthood was literally in their blood. Walking in the ways of the Lord and serving in the temple of the Lord was a way of life to them. It was secondhand to them. It would be like those of us here who have grown up in the church and you just know when it's time to stand up and you know when it's time to sit down and you know what kinds of things to bring to the potluck and what kinds of things not to bring to the potluck. It's just we know how to do it. So there Zechariah is in the holy place doing the things that he is supposed to do, following the instructions to the letter. Hear this. He is there in the holy place of the temple, engaged in religious activity, and yet he does not expect God to actually show His activity was faithful, but it is not filled with a sense of expectation. And so when God has the audacity to show up in his own temple where his presence dwells, the best Zechariah could manage is, yeah, I'm going to need some kind of sign. Perhaps his spiritual imagination had been so dulled that he had never expected God to show up. And when he did, in somewhat spectacular fashion, the first thing out of his mouth is the thing that's bubbling at the top of his heart. Unbelief. If he was struggling to believe that his wife was going to have a child in her old age. Boy, were there some other things coming. A virgin conception with Elizabeth's cousin. God in the flesh. I think there is something then for us We, as God's people, are once again a people, as I've said, who are living in darkness. The scripture reading we read from Zechariah's prophetic song in Luke uh, at the beginning of our service in our scripture reading, one of the things that it does is it incorporates the language of the Old Testament into that prophecy. Some of that stuff is lifted straight from Isaiah chapter 9, where Zechariah is quoting the prophet Isaiah, who's looking forward to a time where the people who have at one time been dwelling in darkness are now seeing a great light that has come. Now, I'm not intending to imply that the light has not come, for it most certainly has. Jesus, John's Gospel goes on to say, is the light of the world. And yet, there is a lot of darkness. Is there not? One of the things that we try to do during the Advent season is to turn up the 
brightness on our Christmas lights long enough for a month pretend this world is not dead and gone. This world is filled with wars and rumors of wars. Famines and forest fires. Cholera and COVID-19. Dictators and demagogues. We really haven't advanced, even though we all have sunshine. Morally speaking, I don't think the ball has moved yet. So we are a people who live in this time between the advents, and so we do the things that, that Christian people are supposed to do. We get up, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we pray, and none of those things are bad things. I'm glad that you woke up this morning, you read your Bible, great job. I'm glad that you showed up to church, and I'm glad that you pray. But we sometimes are, are going about the, the, the activities of religion. We are faithful, in a sense, the way Zechariah was faithful. We are faithful in what we are doing, but we are anything but expectant. Our spiritual capacities for imagination and wonder are so dulled that if God was presumptuous enough to show up in our church this morning or split the clouds and come in power and great glory, we might just have the audacity to say with Zechariah, how shall we know this? Zechariah's story reminds us that whether we are aware of it or not, whether you are aware of it or not, you live in the presence of the living, holy God. When we gather together to worship, the Bible describes God's people gathering for worship, God's people as a whole, as the temple in which his spirit dwells. possible that we just come in and find our seat and take our notes and give our money and sing our songs and never even crosses our mind once that God is living Annie Dillard makes the point boldly when she says of gathered worship, it is madness to wear ladies' hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews. Do we really come before God with a sense of faith-filled? expectancy? 
We have so many words. We have so many biblical things to say. But do we truly believe? The lesson of Zechariah for us this morning, I think, is that if we will not truly believe, then we should not be allowed to speak. And I say that with the fear and trembling and awful responsibility of a person who has been tortured and has not lost his lantern shines a light on our need to believe. As Zechariah's prophecy highlights, sunrise is coming. And we should wake up every day expecting that. And what the season of Advent can do for us is it can, can shake us, jostle us, grab us by the shoulders, get our attention, refocus us, so that we are not the people of God who are simply going about the business of God as if we are not dealing with the living and holy and true God. We perhaps need to have the sacred furniture of our spiritual imaginations rearranged, to live expectantly that Jesus could pierce the clouds at any moment, to stop going about the activities of religion and expect that God may show up in ways that we have categories for, could not have anticipated, and do not entirely understand. And if that sounds a little bit scary to you, good, now we're getting something. Because God just constantly defies our expectations and shows up when we least expect it and does the things that we never thought he could do. So you have an opportunity. I have an opportunity this month to ask myself the question, do I Or has it just gotten woven into the fabric of my life so it's just the thing that I do? It's a time to turn off the cruise control and put your foot on the gas and your hands on the steering wheel and get out of autopilot. And I think that's what God would have us do. Maybe you're here with us this morning and you don't know don't think you know Christ, you're not sure what this is all about. Here's what we would wish to say to you. It's nothing less than the words of Scripture itself. John was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light so that we might believe. Jesus himself would be born, grow up, 
and would make the audacious statement, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's a word for that. It's called exclusivity, and we are not fans. Jesus is unconcerned. He is the one who enters time and space. He is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, who takes on the fullness of humanity without giving up a speck of his deity, lives a perfect and righteous life, offers himself as a sacrifice for his people, those whom he loved, and then in power, directs. You need a crash helmet for a sermon like this. You need to be lashed to the pews for, for messages like that. Friends, it is not cool with truth. So if you're with us this morning and you have never put your faith in Christ as an invitation on the table in front of you, will you believe? Jesus does not say, will you mend your ways? Will you fix it? Will you meet me halfway? He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. And there is no other path but me. So friend, if you're here with us this morning in that state, we invite you to put your faith in Christ. And if you need to talk to somebody more about that, there is somebody nearby within five, there are probably ten people within a five-foot radius of you that would love to walk through this with you and encourage you. Friends, let's look up from the practice of religious stuff and see that the light has already dawned. The sun has risen. He has come. Father, I preach a message like this this morning with fear and trembling. Because those who go about religious responsibilities without faith ought not speak. So I pray that you would reorient my heart. I pray that you would reignite faith in my heart. Pray that we would gather as church expectant the work of the living God. Father, if there is someone here this morning who does not know Christ, pray that they would turn in faith to be saved. We ask it in Jesus.